I'm Gerald Marcello, uh, editor of the University of Bookman. I'm very happy to have you all here at uh, this triumvirate organizational event uh, on a very important topic. Uh, I'm going to speak just briefly introducing uh, folks here before uh, we get started, because I know people are really interested in the conversation. Um, so, Patrick Deneen, to my right, uh, is Professor of Political Science and holds the David A. Genziani Memorial Chair of Constitutional Studies at Notre Dame. And to my left, Philip Munoz is the Tocqueville Associate Professor of Religion and Public Life in the Department of Political Science, also at Notre Dame. Uh, and then we're here to talk about Christianity and politics centered around uh, Patrick's really path-breaking book on the failure of liberalism uh, and the fact that it's been out, how long has it been? Yeah, uh, still uh, 10, almost, almost a year later that we could fill a room shows I think how important uh, the argumentation and, uh, of that book is, and as I explained to him once, it has been covered in all, all the places you would usually expect, but I believe got at least one, if not two, pieces in New York Magazine, which I think is a sign of its real cultural influence <laughs> of covering such a book. Uh, I'm very happy to also have as our co-hosts tonight uh, the Portsmouth Institute and the Morningside Institute. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, the Portsmouth Institute for Faith and Culture is a Benedictine center for the exploration of Catholic thought and the restoration of Christian culture. It's a foundation of Portsmouth Abbey and St. Louis Abbey, two American houses of the English Benedictines, which is the oldest continuously operating Benedictine congregation in the world. Uh, the Institute uh, plans its activities primarily in, in Portsmouth, no surprise, St. Louis and Oxford, so we're very happy to have them here in New York uh, today. And the Morningside Institute is an independent scholarly endeavor dedicated to examining human life through, through the liberal arts. Morningside helps scholars and students contribute to academic disciplines and understand, their, understand them in light of the rich traditions that lie at their origin, uh, based here in New York City. And as I mentioned before, I'm editor of the University of Bookman, which is a uh, book review founded in 1960 by Russell Kirk. This is also uh, the year of Russell Kirk's uh, centenary. Uh, he was born in 1918, so we've been having a number of events, including this one, uh, exploring themes of interest in his work. So without further ado, I'm going to pass it over to Nathaniel, and we'll get started. Great. Thank you all again for coming. So the format this evening um, is going to be one of more of a conversation than a lecture. Um, so Professor Deneen uh, will speak for about 20 to 30 minutes, um, and then Professor Munoz will respond. Um, after his response, they'll have a, a bit of conversation. Um, and then uh, towards the end, when we have about 10 to 15 minutes remaining, we'll open it up to general questions. Um, and uh, in case I forget to remind you then, questions are interrogative in nature. Uh, they are not declamatory. Uh, they are brief. Um, and they, add, they solicit information from the person you're asking rather than stating information that you have. Um, violators of this policy will be chastised uh, publicly. Um, in any event, uh, Professor Deneen, thank you so much, and uh, take it away. Testing, okay, thank you. Uh, so thank you, um, Nathaniel, and Thank you to the University Bookman, uh, Gerald, and um, Portsmouth Institute, Morningside Institute, uh, uh, for hosting this event. And I apologize uh, that uh, 
is taking place on an evening when I understand something else might be going on. <laughs> uh, that's that's very important. <laughs> I realize that this is this is the substance before the fluff. Uh, this was um, really my fault. We had originally scheduled this for Thursday, so it could have been just a uh, post-election discussion. Uh, but my dad wanted to come out to our last home football game this weekend, and uh, since I'm a defender of the family and, and, and centrality, uh, I thought I, I thought I would get uh, permission to uh, to move it a couple of days. Uh, I'm also delighted to appear with my friend and colleague, uh, he's a friend at the moment, uh, <laughs> uh, Professor Philip Munoz. Uh, uh, Philip and I uh, known each other for quite a long time, and, and uh, he'll probably brag about this later or, or, or apologize for it later, but uh, he was instrumental in bringing me to Notre Dame, and I'm very grateful uh, for that and to be at Notre Dame and to have him as a colleague. Um, and I know that he's grateful to be here, uh, having spent so many weeks and months uh, Commenting on my work, uh, that you know clearly his most of his research productivity today uh, involves basically uh, holding on to my coattails, and I'm I'm, I'm I'm willing to share the stage with him. It must be really a thrill for him. <laughs> it was funny last night. I was at uh, the uh, dinner that the provost holds for recently promoted full professors. Associate Professor Munoz. And, uh, 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 but it was funny because the provost uh, asked me uh, uh, what, what I'm doing, what kind of travel. I said, I'm going to New York uh, uh, to have a debate with Professor Munoz. And he said, oh, don't you guys agree on everything? That's what, that's what it looks like to the world. And of course, uh, if you're here tonight, I suspect you know that we don't agree on everything. But I think it's fair to say we agree on some of the most important things. We agree that something is amiss in the world. Uh, we agree that in, a, in some fundamental way, uh, our faith, shared faith, is, uh, is a vital answer to what is amiss in our world today. And I think our debate is um, an important one, but our, our, our similarities, I think, uh, are a reflection of why our friendship is so deep. Um, so on Saturday, some of you may have seen or follow on Twitter, uh, there was an interesting panel, a closing panel at the Center for Ethics and Culture, uh, in which uh, Philip and I were uh, two, two of the four participants, along with Adrian Renewal and uh, Gladden Pappet. And uh, we had an opportunity to, to kind of preview a little bit of that, but this, this allows us to kind of speak one-on-one. -on -one. But at that, at that event, I thought uh, Philip laid out very um, clearly uh, his, his view on the on the nature, on the correct and legitimate nature of politics, which follows, of course, as we would expect, the basic line of argument that one finds in the philosophy of John Locke and the philosophy of our founding fathers. And I don't want this to be a disquisition on the Federalist Papers. I'm sure that you know you've had enough to drink now not to want to hear that. But rather, let me let me pick up on on the three I think the three features that he described as central to what constitutes a legitimate political order, and suggest while they may they may be fine in theory. And uh, um, I think they are in some ways fine and furial or problematic. As it turns out, in fact, they become deeply problematic. And that's really the, the core argument of my book, that, uh, that the theory, when it becomes actualized, turns out in many ways to result in, in some ways, in the opposite of the, of the claims uh, with which liberalism begins. So let me take his three, the sort of, the, the, if I could, the trinity of the liberal political tradition, <laughs> equality, liberty, and consent. And just, just very briefly, I don't even think it should take 30 minutes unless I keep making introductory remarks, <laughs> uh, to, um, to just, just at least mention uh, where I see uh, the theory uh, leading in some ways to its opposite. So we'll begin with equality. And by equality, what's meant is that we are, by nature, 
uh, created equal. Or we could say that we are, uh, uh, we are endowed with certain rights, uh, that we are rights-bearing creatures, and as such we are all deserving uh, of a political society, or entitled to a political society that defends uh, and protects those rights. Uh, but what's also at the heart of the liberal tradition is the view that the, this, this theoretical, we could say, idea of equality is one that is in many ways proposed in order to create the conditions for the actual um, uh, ex growth, expansion, and indeed widening of actual inequality. At the heart of the liberal tradition is the argument that uh, human societies at one time uh, consisted of people who were largely uh, equal in condition. They were largely equal in condition, in particular, uh, economically fairly equal, living in societies that weren't terribly productive, that uh, uh, didn't have high degrees of inequality, at least economic inequality, because there wasn't high degrees of uh, economic productivity. And so that uh, even, even someone with political power uh, still had to live in a cold, dank, castle with no indoor plumbing and toilets and so forth. Uh, and what, what's proposed, for example, by, by John Locke, is, is a good example, is that by introducing a society in which our natural inequalities can become manifest, can become salient, and in particular the differences of our talents and, and abilities. He divides the world into two types of people, Republicans and Democrats, uh, or as he calls them, industrious and rational, and querulous and contentious. <laughs> the Rush Limbaugh joke for the night. Uh, that, that the condition of equality allows for the emergence of the differences that define us, and that these differences will result in radical differentiation of status, position, wealth, um, and even uh, societal, um, uh, we could say, if not formal political rights, actual political power and influence. So that it does, it's in fact, it's always designed, the premise of equality is premised on the, um, a society that will, uh, if successful, manifest profound and indeed increasing levels of actual inequality. But moreover, that that condition of inequality will be one in which the people who have attained their status will understand that that was the result of their work and their effort and not that of anyone else. That's their, their achievement. In other words, a society in which we understand our position and status as a result of our own individual efforts will be one in which our past status and position will be, uh, in some ways, lead to a kind of self-congratulation in the sense of our own status and uh, reward. And will lead uh, to a kind of regard for those who haven't been successful as it's their fault. They, they didn't strive. They were querulous and contentious. They're deplorable. They're, uh, it was their, you know, their own fault. They didn't, what, what did Kevin Williamson say? They didn't rent the U-Haul and get out of those places. Uh, and at the same time, it will, of course, result in a society in which those who haven't succeeded will harbor deep resentments, precisely because in both internalized in their own view and the view of those who have been successful, uh, they will, uh, they in some sense deserve their, their position and their status. Uh, this is unsurprisingly much the condition I think that we see in our country today. And if we see a divide, a deep divide in our politics likely be manifested tonight, 
I think to a considerable extent is precisely because of the success of liberal equality, if I can put it that way. Secondly, liberty. Liberty is also one of the original conditions of humankind, according to the liberal theory. We are by nature free and equal in this sense. But of course we know that freedom, the freedom of the individual, uh, is not our natural condition, although it's stated to be the natural condition of human beings uh, in accordance with the state of nature. Our natural condition is actually to be deeply dependent. We're born dependent, we'll likely die dependent. It's a very narrow space of time in which you actually experience yourself as independent, and that's usually false too, because your parents are usually depositing a little bit of money into your bank accounts. You know who I'm talking about. That's a young crowd out here. Uh, but in some ways you could say that, but, uh, I think Alistair McIntyre has made something of this point in his book, Dependent Rational Animals. Liberalism is premised on the idea that the definition of what is the correct or uh, 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 definitive part of one's lifespan is, are those years roughly between 25 and 32 years old. That that's what constitutes uh, the condition of liberty. So it's a condition that on the one hand is uh, parentless, notionally, and childless. Uh, and of course, this is not a natural condition as a, as a rule. We are not parentless, hopefully, uh, certainly not by nature. Uh, and I hope we're not childless, although increasingly, of course, we are. This idea of freedom, in fact, and liberty is, in fact, one that is notional, but which liberalism and the ideal of liberalism uh, seeks to realize. And it's not, I don't mean to say liberalism does this. We, as people who embrace this ideal and ethic of liberty, we seek to make ourselves free. And we do this uh, in particular through the means of delinking ourselves from other people, from places, from traditions, from cultures, from religion, all of the things that might otherwise in some ways define us, define our relationships, uh, give us a kind of identity uh, that goes beyond mere sort of voluntarism, but a kind of um, an identity of givenness and of gift and of inheritance, uh, that, that the liberal philosophy engenders and cultivates a sense and an understanding of liberty that transforms who we are and how we interact and how we relate to, the, to, the, to other people, to children, to parents. Yeah. Of course, children become expendable, uh, at the very least no longer desirable. Uh, and parents are something that, you know, people that you once lived with uh, who need to go live in Florida and die eventually, <laughs> but uh, not to be a burden on those of us who are free. So uh, liberalism, in some senses, creates a form of liberty that can't be found in nature in some senses, and which it has to create, and it creates this especially through the assistance of a, of a growing architecture of both state and managed market. And so when we think again about the world today, our political world today, and the two objects that particularly, uh, I think, cause us to think that these are loci of a kind of, a certain kind of bondage, a certain kind of unfreedom. It's in particular the growing and extensive and world-straddling state that increasingly exists to give us this condition and to provide for us the condition of this sense and experience of liberty and this global straddling market uh, that takes on a life of its own and which we, in some senses, no longer believe that we control. So the things that make us free also, in some ways, end up, uh, in some ways, um, uh, 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 ordering a world in which we no longer feel uh, that we control our fates. 
lastly, just briefly on the, on the issue of consent. Consent, of course, again, is a kind of notional ideal of the philosophy of liberalism. It's the idea that uh, government is only legitimate when it is when it arises from the consent of the people and the consent has to be freely given. But of course, consent can't be limited to uh, the ideal of consent of the government. Uh, and this is a, a fact that's acknowledged, of course, by Locke himself in the second, uh, the second treatise on government, when he regards ultimately our relationship, among other things, to our parents and our families also subject to consent. Because how can we be thought to be people who can freely consent to anything if we have been shaped and formed in ways that are deep and profound uh, by our families, or by our inheritance, by our religion, by uh, our places, by our traditions, by custom, and so forth. And so it's not merely uh, government that's created by consent, but our entire lives in some ways have to be guided and shaped by consent. Every, every aspect of our lives can only be thought to be legitimate if it's consensual, if it's by consent, but notice that in order to achieve this condition, go back to the discussion of liberty here, in order to achieve, achieve a condition uh, in which we can be thought that we give freely our consent, we have to be in some ways thought to be and indeed uh, achieve a condition in which our consent is no longer influenced by anything out of our own autonomous choice. Can one be thought to consent to something truly if one's consent has been influenced by some source outside of oneself? I, I, I confronted this, um, this uh, interesting sort of, uh, sort of aspect of liberalism during, uh, and I, this, this anecdote appears in my book, and people always mention it to me, so I'll mention it to you in case you didn't read it. Uh, they mentioned it because they said it was striking. Uh, it occurred during a conversation when I was teaching at Princeton University, so filled with Rawlsians of the various stripes, you know, left Rawlsians, lefter Rawlsians, really far left Rawlsians, really a diverse place. And, um, uh, we were discussing uh, a book that had recently appeared called Rumspringer, which is about uh, the Amish tradition of sending young teenagers uh, out of the community for a year, two years, uh, to live among what they call the English, that's us, uh, to um, A, sort of sow the wild oats, uh, B, get the crazy kids out for a little while while they're doing their craziness, and C, force them to confront the question of whether they are actually ready to enter in a permanent way the community. Uh, that from which they, they came. And what this book relates is that they act like crazy kids, college kids, when they're out there for a year or two, doing all the things that you think of college kids doing, except maybe not studying, uh, <laughs> like college kids. Uh, and um, uh, and they, uh, uh, on the order of something like 80 to 90% re-enter the community after that year or two. And my colleagues were extremely upset about this. And they said, you know, how can it be thought that they're free if they're entering a, an illiberal society after living in a liberal society? How can it be thought that this consent is freely given? And the conclusion was these people are so deeply shaped by an illiberal background that the only way we could know that they were actually free is if they were choosing liberal society. And I said, how would you know that they're truly free? I said, well, 50%, one colleague said, 50% would have to choose. At least 50% would have to choose not to go back. That one's religion would have to be a coin flip, or one's identity would have to be a coin flip. And if you think about that's where we are. In most of our religions, religious traditions today, whether or not your child is likely to be and remain in your religious tradition is more or less a coin flip for most Americans today, roughly 50% for most of the mainstream religions. So we've achieved, uh, in some sense, of perhaps true consent, uh, but obviously at considerable cost of um, 
you could say, the fabric of those institutions that form the deepest fabric of what, what I think of as a, uh, a healthy, functioning, uh, thriving uh, society, uh, and one that's increasingly replaced by, uh, on the one hand, autonomous, choosing, consenting, free, and unequal individuals, uh, a world-straddling state, a world-straddling market. In other words, liberalism. All right, thank you very much, Professor Munoz. You have the floor. joining us this evening. Thank you to the, uh, the organizers, the Portsmouth Institute and the University of Bookman and um, the Morningside Institute and their respective leaders. Uh, I want to, uh, I have special thanks to Franklin, uh, he was the original bartender. Uh, I do find listening to Patrick much easier with the bartender. Uh, for those of you who have been hovering around the bar, fearing that Patrick is going to speak for 55 minutes, there are seats open in the front. Feel free to take them. I uh, know, um, you know, Patrick is, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a great privilege uh, actually to share the stage with him. Um, uh, I said this in one of our earlier events, you know, it's not every, every year that the former president of the United States posts on Facebook about one of your colleagues, you know, new, new books to his 55 million followers. Um, so Patrick now casts a big shadow and I just sort of hang out. Uh, uh, trailing him around, kind of like Lincoln with Douglas. <laughs> That's more apt than you realize. <laughs> also, you know, I, I was actually on the plane. I was reading all my essays, critiquing Patrick Lenin. There's been like four of them now, yeah. And, and thinking, like, why am I spending so much time on this? I'm like, you get so much wrong. <laughs> I did have a page. Um, of all sorts of things he gets right, but since Patrick didn't spend very much time, I'll cut my remarks, <laughs> not including those. Uh, no, no. Patrick, so the book is very good, and if you haven't read it, you, you should read it. Uh, and to maintain our friendship, you should, you should buy it in hard time as well. Um, no, it's very good, and it's especially good. It's, um, this is one element that I think actually has been uh, undersold in the reviews. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful book. Um, because Patrick can really write. Uh, part of the success of the book, I think, is he, um, he matches uh, insightful analysis with um, uh, insightful prose, and beautiful prose, really. Uh, he can really turn a phrase. Uh, liberalism failed because liberalism uh, succeeded. Uh, it's a great line, and it makes you think. Right? And the, the book has made me think uh, quite a bit. And so uh, the, uh, it is true that we have deep disagreements, but I know one on, on the faculty has led me to think more, to challenge me to think than Patrick. And that's why he's such a wonderful uh, colleague and friend. Uh, so I recommend the book to you. Uh, if, if it was titled, uh, Why Liberalism is Failing, uh, I might agree. Uh, but we, we, we have profound agreement on what's wrong right now. We have disagreement on the causes of those pathologies. So the pathologies we agree upon, and Patrick didn't uh, explain too much of the thesis of the book, and it's probably familiar to you anyways, but let me just highlight a few things that I think he gets exactly right. That um, our society is, is failing right now because um, we emphasize uh, will and consent too much, uh, and, and we don't emphasize objective truth enough. We're a society that doesn't know right from wrong. And uh, we say, uh, you know, 
you have your values, I have my values. And that means we have no values and nothing to guide us. And I think he's right in that diagnosis, and that is a deep problem uh, in our society. And related to that, um, we've abandoned the idea of, of nature as a guide. Natural teleology, if that term means anything to you, but even just in an ordinary sense. right? Our bodies, uh, he points out, we treat as uh, things to control and manipulate using technology. We can do whatever we want. Right? I don't think he uses this example, but I guess our tattoos are part of this. But transgenderism, maybe, is a, the quintessential example of this. Right? You're, the givenness of your body makes no difference. You can be whatever you want to be. And you can be something today or something tomorrow. Right? And you have an absolute right to that. Because what we are, essentially, is creative will. Right? And, and he's exactly right that uh, a society that emphasizes will, that has no nat natural standard of right and wrong, uh, will emancipate what's worse than human nature. So that I all agree on. And he tells that story very well, uh, and with all sorts of uh, uh, insight into different areas of our life. That's the other great strength of the book. He sees how this plays out in liberal education, in regards to technology, in regards to the family. Uh, so I, I do recommend the book. But it's, no, you know, it's not interesting to hear why this book is so great. Uh, so let me tell you why it's wrong. <laughs> Let me give you three, uh, I, I, I could present it this way, sort of three examples, uh, one from our founding, one from the 19th century, and one from the 20th century, to sort of illustrate uh, the, the disagreement about the foundations of what is wrong. So here's my, here's my founding example, uh, and since we're in New York, it, it comes from Hamilton. So Patrick's argument, uh, the most philosophical aspect of the argument, is that uh, America is Lockean, and Lockean is really Hobbesianism, right? And Hobbes is bad, right? And interesting, this charge was made by a British uh, loyalist, by a loyalist, an American, but a loyalist to Britain at the time of the founding. And the young Alexander Hamilton responded. Uh, so the, the, fat, the farmer, uh, this is the British loyalist, said, you Americans and your preaching of natural rights are Hobbes, or Hobbesians, because Hobbes talks about natural rights. And this is what Hamilton, graduate of King's College, uh, said in response. <clears throat> Sorry, let me find the, the right page here. Uh, Hamilton writes, and this is in, I think, 1775 or 1774, uh, the farmer refuted, and I'm going to have you pull this here so I can get the quote. I don't want to mis misspeak. Uh, 
On this morally obligatory law of nature depend the rights of mankind. In a state of nature, Hamilton says, no man has the moral power to deprive another of his life, limbs, property, or liberty. Natural rights are part of the natural law. So Hamilton says, we're not Hobbesian. In fact, we're exactly the opposite. The doctrine of natural rights has its grounding in the moral status of nature, in the natural law. The founders were, in their own way, natural law thinkers. So the doctrine of natural rights, which I take the foundation of American liberalism, is not emancipated from nature or emancipated from right or wrong. In fact, it starts with a claim about a truth. Right? We hold these truths to be self-evident. Right? Truths that are authored by our creator. Our rights are authored by our creator in nature and nature's God. Okay. First point of difference between Patrick and I. I see uh, the founders in American liberalism, and there's a variety of liberalism, but the founders' liberalism as embracing, in fact, basing our political philosophy on a standard of truth, which is recognized by reason and is consistent with the law of nature, the natural law. Okay. Second example. This comes from the, the 19th century. I'm going to read you a quotation. I won't tell you who it's from, but I'm sure some of you will know. Okay. A famous politician in the 19th century. It is no argument, I'm sorry, it is no answer to this argument to say that this is an evil and hence should not be tolerated. You must allow the people to decide for themselves whether they desire a main liquor law, that's prohibition, by the way, whether they desire a main liquor law or not. You allow them, that is the people, to decide for themselves what kind of common schools they will have, what system of banking they will adopt, and whether they will adopt any at all. You allow them to decide for themselves the relations between husband and wife, parent and child, guardian and ward. And in fact, you allow them to decide for themselves all other questions. And why not upon this question? When you put a limitation on the right of the people to, to decide what laws they want, you have destroyed the fundamental principle of self-government. Okay, that quote perfectly captures, I think, Professor Deneen's understanding of liberalism. Right? It's the priority of the right over the good. And the people decide through their consent what is right. Any idea who authored that quotation? No? Stephen Douglas. This was Stephen Douglas's position about what the federal government should do about slavery in the territories. Slavery was a state issue, but not in the federal territories. The Constitution gives the federal government power to regulate. You know, we have the police powers in the territories. So the debate between Lincoln and Douglas is, what should the position of the federal government be in the territories of slavery? What should the, gov the federal government's, how should it regulate slavery in the territories? And Douglas's position was, let the people of the territory decide for themselves. Because that is what self-government is. That is what democracy is. The people deciding what laws they want to live under. What is right and wrong. That is an element, of, that is an understanding of liberalism. And I think Patrick picks up on that understanding of liberalism. But Abraham Lincoln said that's the wrong understanding. That we should outlaw slavery in the territories. Because slavery is at odds with our founding principles of human equality. Because there's no right to slavery, because slavery is a moral wrong, we should outlaw it where we can. 
In fact, slavery stands opposed to our founding principles. <coughs> Lincoln's position was that the federal government should outlaw slavery in the territories. Okay, my third example. This from the 20th century. You'll notice, you'll know this quotation. one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Right. Frederick Nietzsche. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is uh, our current liberalism. Right? It, it's, of course, from the uh, uh, plurality opinion of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. I'll just say it's Justice Kennedy who wrote it. I think it was Justice Kennedy. Right? It's Kennedy, O'Connor, and Souter. Right? And here's the deep irony about um, what I call the radical Catholic critique of, of liberalism, including American liberalism. Right? The critique actually holds that this is the proper understanding or the proper juris a jurisprudence that properly follows from our act the truth of our founding principles. Now, of course, Patrick is, uh, as I am, right, deeply pro-life. Right? So don't, don't misunderstand. Patrick and I agree 100% on this. But if the radical Catholic critique of America is right, right, that liberalism is, and American liberalism is based on uh, willfulness, no standard of nature, on what grounds do we ha have to say that Casey was wrong? Why isn't Justice Kennedy's opinion exactly right, or the interpretation of the Constitution exactly consistent with our liberal principles? Here's how Lincoln responded to Douglas, and I'm just going to adapt Lincoln's language to the, to the abortion issue. Sorry, we'll that last one. And, and I do this because here, here's what was at stake. I mean, Patrick and I agree on our, on our current conditions, but where we disagree is what to do about it. I think we should follow Lincoln's example and reach back to our traditions, right, and our founding principles. So here's what Lincoln says, paraphrasing, updating the language to apply to abortion. The doctrine of liberty is right, absolutely and eternally, eternally right, but it has no just application as here attempted. Or perhaps I should say, I should say rather, that whether it has such just application depends upon whether the fetus is not or is a person. Fetus is not a person, why in that case he who is a person may, as a matter of liberty, do just as he pleases with him. But if the fetus is a person, of course Lincoln says slavery, right? but if the fetus is a person, is it not to that extent a total destruction of liberty to say that he too shall not have a chance to govern himself or have a chance to live? If the fetus is a person, then why then my ancient faith teaches me that all men are created equal? and that there can be no moral right in connection with making one man a slave, or in this case, aborting another. Lincoln reaches back into our constitutional tradition, into our founding principles, to give an argument against slavery. And it was the right argument. It was the true argument. My argument is that we should follow Lincoln's example. 
to reach back to the best of our traditions, to find the truth of our founding principles. That's how we best can deal with abortion, I think many of the social ills that afflict us today. Thank you very much. discussion uh, between professors Munoz and Denise, um, and then in a little bit I'll open the floor for questions. Uh, so thank you very much, Philip, for uh, a few kind words and, uh, <laughs> of course, a, a powerful statement in defense of our, our founding principles as they were articulated by the likes of Hamilton and, and uh, Lincoln, of course, uh, not, not Justice Kennedy, perhaps. Um, <laughs> You know, it was funny this weekend on Saturday, I, and I had a uh, sort of an aside, a comment that I've been thinking a bit about, which is that uh, I'm on stage with uh, two people, or four, three people actually, so Patton and Vermeule and Munoz, who are debating uh, what year we should go back to. Is it, is it 1789, uh, or is it the 13th century, uh, was, the, was the nature of the debate. And, but the more, I began, the more I was thinking about that after the event, the more I was actually thinking, um, Munoz is actually not nostalgic for uh, any particular date, if you notice. He's, he's nostalgic for a set of principles uh, that have been variously articulated in the course of American history. And I'm, I'm betting, I'm quick on the spot, but I'm betting that he would agree that uh, it wouldn't be a matter of simply going back to that date, uh, because one can find uh, ex examples and um, practices at those various times when those principles were articulated, in which it seemed to be the case that even the people articulating those principles didn't live according to those principles. I mean, he's fond of quoting Thomas Jefferson, of course, not to, not to belabor a point that we all know, but he was uh, notoriously a holder of slaves and other things with slaves and so forth. Um, but I, uh, you know, this is, you could say this is uh, you know, a sign of deep hypocrisy that uh, is a human failing at all times and all places. But I actually think uh, this is in keeping with what I was saying earlier about the nature of equality under liberalism. But the nature of equality under liberalism is really premised ultimately on the view that this form of equality, the notional idea of equality, which in some senses we're all, we all begin with, allows for a differentiation in which ultimately the strong rule the weak. And in fact, in which the strong ultimately can exclude the weak. And this hasn't been merely an accidental aspect of a liberal tradition, it's been central. In some ways, one of its defining features. Uh, we can look to slavery as an example of that, which again, we can say, okay, liberalism corrected itself, but it corrected itself at a time when the practice of slavery was no longer that economically necessary, when slave labor was increasingly being replaced with the uh, fruits of the Industrial Revolution. So as long as it was useful to deploy the weak in, uh, on behalf of the strong, uh, it was, uh, at least for many, an acceptable practice. Uh, at the time that Lincoln is giving these uh, ringing words, uh, the Indians are being uh, exterminated, hounded uh, out of their native lands. And in fact, that follows directly from arguments that you encounter in John Locke, precisely following the argument of the industrious and the rational and the querulous and contentious. Locke argues that you're only, in some ways, uh, capable of being a human being as someone who self-owns oneself when one mixes one's labor with the world, with, uh, with productive labor. And the Indians were regarded by Locke, as well as uh, the settlers of America, as not being fully human, precisely because they didn't exhibit the industriousness 
that was uh, uh, that excluded them then from full humanity. Uh, moving to the progressive era, the infirm, the mentally disabled, the those who were genetically inferior, uh, were regarded as not human anymore, no longer belonging to the human family, and through science could be exterminated or sterilized and prevented from any longer. Um, You know, perpetuating their perfections into the world. And of course today, as the Casey decision of course expresses, the unborn uh, are, are a burden uh, upon our equal liberty, particularly the equal liberty of women, and are therefore expendable. Now all of these, I think, can be treated as these are hip you know, hypocrisies or exceptions or um, aspects of, uh, of practices that don't conform to the liberal tradition. But I actually think it's, it's a, a deeper challenge is to confront the question that, in fact, liberalism is really fundamentally premised on separating <coughs> those who are included in the family of humanity, those who are ultimately endowed with rights, and those who are not. And here I would look to the example of history rather than perhaps uh, um, the principles uh, that, uh, in fact, it seems to me, permit and have continued to permit uh, the definition of certain human, biologically human types, not to be included in the family of humanity. Very, very good. I mean, I think um, uh, I, I agree with much of what Patrick said. I mean, it's obviously just true, right? I mean, principles only go so far in politics, right? We we fail to understand the principles, or more commonly, we understand them, and because of ordinary human corruption and sinfulness. In self-interest, we don't, we don't, we're not willing to accept their consequences, right? Consequences, especially when they go against our self-interest. Um, yeah, how do we guide our practice? Right? We have to have recourse to something. Right? Uh, when I teach the founders, uh, the, the students, I think, are often taught, well, all men are created equal. Always, I mean, come on, let's be honest. There have been all white men with property. Or all white men, right, were equal. And I said, no, the, no, they, Jefferson actually understood what he was saying. I mean, he did. He, he understood all men, all human beings are equal. Uh, the Declaration of Independence made slavery a problem. It, it made the holding of slaves, and Jefferson told it, it made him a hypocrite. Because the course of human history is one of subjection, is one people enslaving Domineering another, and it was right the great good. I mean, this is why America is an exceptional nation. Not that we immediately lived up to our principles, but at least we articulated the right principles. And so I agree with Patrick. Uh, not only that uh, our principles often don't guide us, and too often have failed us, but they offer us guidance and. Someone like me or uh, uh, writers, it, how do we address our current problems in light of what? Uh, and here, there's uh, I, I reach into Patrick's own argument, right? One of the reasons to uh, embrace the best of our principles is because they are ours. I mean, I, I believe they're true, but this is our tradition, right? And rather than trying to import a foreign tradition or create a new tradition, right? The Patrick, in some ways, is deeply a Burkean conservative, in some ways. Well, the Burkean side of uh, us should be to find what's close to home, 
to help fix what, what ails the home. One other thing, and this is actually to praise, uh, to praise the book, um, Patrick is very insightful of the tendencies of the regime. And this is what political theorists do, classical political theorists. They point out the tendencies of every regime has certain tendencies. Aristocracy tends towards oligarchy. Monarchy tends towards despotism. Right? Democracies tend towards all the pathologies that Patrick has identified. And Patrick is a great student of Tocqueville. Right? These are, he, he rightfully appropriates Tocqueville. But the Tocquevillian solution, though, is not to overturn the regime, but to counteract it. And so we do need to counteract liberalism's tendencies. I think in here we would agree, right? Liberal education is supposed to be a, a, a one of the ways we, we stop the materialism and the low culture that democracies tend to, tend to foster, right? Strong family and churches, right, are absolutely essential, right? So the, the disagreement might be one uh, more of emphasis. Patrick, I think, is right that liberal practice does mitigate against liberal principles. I think an astute, that's an astute observation he makes. But that's true of all regimes. Right? That's a deep lesson of Aristotle and of, and of Tocqueville. Every regime tends to be parasitic on ourselves. And so our task is to, I think, is to, to, to mitigate the tendencies of the regime. And as a, to repeat what I said earlier, I think the, the best way to do that is within what's most noble. So, uh, Philip identifies a, a, a profound paradox, which is how, and this is what I've been thinking about this for probably most of my academic career, I guess I've made my, my uh, something of my living on it, which is how can one be conservative in a liberal nation? How is it possible to, to in any way, be a kind of Burkean in some ways uh, in, uh, in a nation that is definitionally not conservative, right? I mean, the opposite, in some ways, of a conservative is a is a liberal, uh, and uh, so we've developed uh, the differentiation between conservative liberals and liberal liberals or progressive liberals. Uh, and uh, I've spent a lot of time writing about the ways in which uh, conservative liberals actually, in many ways, um, advance the very thing uh, that uh, they otherwise uh, would uh, presume to resist. Uh, and and Burke himself uh, was. Uh, was confronted with this kind of paradox, which is, uh, if you're in a tradition, if you can call it that, if you're in a tradition that undermines tradition, is that defensible? Uh, and he broke with a friend over that. I hope that doesn't happen tonight. But he broke, he broke with a friend on this very point on the floor of Parliament. Uh, uh, Fox, um, his friend and fellow Whig, uh, defended uh, the French Revolution as a tradition that was endemic to France. And Burke said, uh, this is, um, this is simply a misunderstanding of what tradition is, that tradition can't be destructive of tradition in some senses. So we have, you know, we have, a, we have a difficulty, and it's, I guess this, this is one thing that goes to the heart of our disagreement. Several times tonight, Philip has said, well, uh, if, we don't have, um, if we don't resort to the Constitution, what's the principle on which we can uh, uh, dismiss or argue against something like Kennedy, uh, Kennedy's statement? And if we don't resort to the principles of the Constitution, how can we contest against slavery? And here's where I would argue that, I mean, and as I've already stated, uh, I think that these, um, these, perhaps not slavery per se, but uh, the rule of the strong over the weak uh, in various forms, uh, and um, uh, 
ultimately a kind of um, uh, a form of freedom that defines freedom essentially as the will and choice and uh, autonomy and self-sovereignty um, of the individual. Uh, that these are not in, to be corrected by the Constitution. They arise from a flawed understanding of human liberty and a flawed understanding of human equality. And as a result, one has to reach outside of our political tradition in some ways, in, in two ways. I mean, for me, as a Roman Catholic, I reach out to my religious tradition as a corrective. In fact, I think it's a vital thing uh, for people, people of various faith traditions who I think have resources that go beyond the regime uh, in just the way uh, it wasn't just Lincoln who was arguing against slavery. It was primarily the churches. Uh, the churches were really the source of the great uh, uh, um, objection to uh, and um, uh, uh, deep and profound criticism of slavery. And this wasn't, of course, only true in America. It was true in England, which didn't have our Constitution as such, uh, but in which Wilberforce, as a religious figure, uh, was, was, was primarily in the lead in the abolition of slavery in England. So I think it's incorrect to say we only have these principles, and this is all that we have. In fact, I think to, in some ways to appeal to them and solely those principles is to bind us uh, to a tradition that in fact has, uh, it seems to me, inexorably led uh, to uh, the, the very things that I think Philip is himself disturbed by. Let me, let me just conclude by giving you one further example. Philip's been writing a lot in the few things he's written, which is not just a criticism of me. Uh, he's been writing and speaking a lot about academic freedom uh, and the need to protect academic freedom. And yet, I think the, the, source, the source of this critique of academic freedom, of course, comes from the fact that universities have become these monolithically, politically correct places that now shout down people uh, who are seen as critics of lifestyle liberalism in various ways and a kind of uh, a form of egalitarianism that we now see uh, on our campuses. Uh, the origins of this new orthodoxy lie in the introduction of academic freedom on our college campuses. If you look at the history and you actually tra track it through uh, and understand that these institutions were once all almost entirely religious institutions devoted precisely to an inquiry into what is and what constitutes human freedom, liberal arts, human excellence, virtue, character, that all of those forms and uh, goals and uh, uh, understandings of these institutions of higher learning, all of those goals were undermined with the introduction of academic freedom, which didn't simply give space for professors to say new things. It was actually introduced with the firm and very definitive intention of undermining and ultimately displacing the religious affiliations of these institutions of turning them into essentially uh, institutions that became transgressive. In the 1912 uh, AAUP uh, um, statement about academic freedom, it calls academic institutions institutions of experimentation. That's what their, their primary goal would be, to experiment, to try new things, to transgress, to overcome custom, to overcome tradition. And by the time that the 1970 report is written, uh, to regard as both uh, problematic any religious institution that remained religiously affiliated, but also acknowledging that that applied to very few institutions anymore, now that the Catholic institutions finally had effectively disaffiliated through the Lando Lake Statement. So the claim that in some ways liberalism will save us is uh, obscured by the fact that what bothers us today was in fact created by the introduction 
of a liberal, libertarian, classic liberal ethos <coughs> into our most formative institutions, including the university. Let's turn it over. Okay, sure. Um, we'll take some uh, questions from the audience, um, and we'll try to uh, run a mic over to you. So again, uh, brief interrogative questions. Uh, if there are any, please raise your hand. Uh, yes, go ahead, Billy. Hi, um, thank you both for your stimulating remarks. Right towards the end there, we were talking, both of you, about um, finding the best in one's own tradition. And, could you just introduce yourself? Yeah, um, my name is Billy Borman, and I live here in New York. Um, so, I was, and I, I'm very glad to be here. Um, but I was wondering if you think that uh, English speakers, and Americans in particular, are at a unique disadvantage um, with regard to political imagination, because to be American is so much to be governed by a particular form of government. Um, in Brazil, they just elected a president who promised to re-overhaul the entire government and bring back the military dictatorship. Um, the most popular form, uh, popular movement in early France of the last century was a monarchist movement. Um, but for Americans, you really have the Constitution, and that's what gives credence to all of the appeals to the founders, is because to live in the United States is to have three branches of government, etc., etc. Do you think that limits our ability to talk about political alternatives about life beyond liberalism? Well, I, I take it, in some ways, it, it, it may have had that powerful effect and still continues to, but one of the, it strikes me that one of the, um, I think, causes and reasons for the strong response to my book, especially, I mean, look at this audience tonight, but from young people, uh, and this has been everywhere I've, I've spoken, is, this, is increasingly the sense that that answer no longer suffices. It's not to say that the alternative answer is obvious, and I think that's what we're all struggling toward. Uh, it's what is, the, what is the alternative, precisely because our sort of social imaginary has been so dominated by the, by the liberal uh, tradition. Uh, but uh, you know, I was struck on Saturday at Notre Dame uh, that certainly among Catholics, uh, Adrian Vermeule was, was speaking, and uh, up in the second, uh, up in the balcony was Rod Dreher, uh, as far away as possible. Uh, it was quite a, quite, a, quite a dance all weekend to keep them, uh, keep them in separate rooms. And yet what strikes me is that it's precisely a moment when one realizes, or at least one begins to suspect that the liberal political imaginary no longer is going to suffice. That sort of, at least for, I think, a Catholic, and I think for a growing number of people of certainly a religious uh, faith, and perhaps even beyond that, begin to think of two alternatives. A completely new political order, and integralism, I think, represents that alternative, or a way to sort of escape the existing political order, which, which, is, which is Rod. And so the interesting thing to me is that Adrian and Rod are really just two sort of alternatives to what is a common response, uh, and it perhaps on one hand isn't surprising that they don't like each other very much uh, and regard their solutions as deeply problematic and flawed, but uh, it's also worth acknowledging that I think they both come from the same place, not literally, but. So I think the answer to the question is yes, and for the most part that's good, right, this is, we'll get to our disagreement, I mean, 
we have the I mean, people from Massachusetts will disagree, but uh, <laughs> ridiculous. you know the, the American Constitution is the oldest and longest constitution uh, in uh, in function today, and for the most part, that's a good thing, right? Now that said, uh, we live under a, a federal government that is nothing like our James Madison would, you know, look like fly over Washington and roll over in his grave, right? I mean, it's so big, it's so mammoth. And the great genius of FDR was to figure out how to change everything while sounding loyal to the founders, right? I mean, we had a recent president who said, you know, you're going to change America as we know it. So it's, uh, regrettably, to some extent, I think the Constitution has provided far more room for change in its governing structure than I think the founders. I mean, obviously, some of the change of the 19th century is very good, but you know, the, the growth of the federal government was not anticipated, and yet we're still under nominally the same constitution. It strikes me, and one of the reasons I, I'm, I'm a great admirer of Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America is that Tocqueville, among other things, gives us a, a, some examples of, of a way that Americans, at least as he describes it, have lived uh, uh, in, in sort of um, forms that are not liberal and not defined by liberalism. Uh, uh, of course, living under the Constitution, but as he describes it in the, in the beginning of Democracy in America, more or less oblivious to things in Washington, more or less oblivious to anything that's going on, more or less outside of the townships and maybe maybe their states. Uh, and so we have we have um, examples of even from our own history and our, our own tradition of how it's possible to live in a way uh, that doesn't um, simply resort to appeals to the constitutional tradition, rather appeals to practices. That's why, in the conclusion of my book. I don't offer a program as such or a new political philosophy for America. I suggest that the first and most urgent thing that we need, at least as a political matter, is to develop practices, and practices that are particularly bound to places and people. And that's not, it's not a comprehensive solution. It's not an argument that's going to you know, change the world in some senses. But uh, it's, it's a place to start in, in precisely because it recovers um, a, a kind of a lived tradition that might still be within sort of the muscle memory uh, of, of our, of our um, countrymen. As the loyal son of Massachusetts uh, and a partisan of John Adams, I want to identify fake news when I see it. <laughs> pass over that. Um, one final question. Yes, the gentleman in the beard there. Yes. Maybe we'll have one more after All right. Thank you again for being here. My name is Paul Mueller. I teach at the King's College downtown. Uh, I'm an economist. And uh, my question, reading your book, one thing I was most troubled by is in economic circles that I run in, when you say classical liberal, they say, oh, you're talking about Smith and Hume, of course. Uh, but you hardly mention them in your book. And, and again, Locke, I think in political theory, it's Locke and Hobbes and then social contract theory. But I wonder if you could comment a little bit on whether that leaving them out was intentional or was just not an area you knew as well, because they present kind of a different perspective where they're not doing state of nature or social contract theory. And, and in particular, when you were talking about equality, um, Smith, when he talks about equality, he says equality is this idea of humbling our self-love, where we realize we're just one of the crowd, that to prefer ourselves to others is sort of a gross um, misuse of, of our 
our faculty. So I wonder if you could comment on on how the Scottish Enlightenment maybe fits in here, if you you know, and why it doesn't uh, figure more prominently. Professor Munoz had a good idea, which is that we're going to take a few questions and then maybe respond to them uh, cumulatively. So let's get maybe one or two more questions. Um, uh, we have, yes, this gentleman down here. I thank you guys uh, very much. I'm Michael. I'm a graduate student at Fordham University. And this is a uh, question for Professor Munoz, is that right? Yeah. Um, so one of the things you mentioned to help sort of allay the pathologies of liberalism is strong churches and strong families. As you know, um, one of Professor Deneen's arguments in the book is that the sort of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness theory of human nature encourages or depicts a deracinated individual that we then have to create. Um, and that that actually is part of what destroys strong families and strong churches. So I was wondering if you could comment on that, whether you think that's an implausible characterization of liberal liberalism. Okay, other, other questions? Um, yes, all the way uh, in the back. That's my wife, so I have to. <laughs> this is the maritime question. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not, actually. Actually, it, it builds on the foreign question, and I'd, I'd like to ask it because I think it might draw out a little more. Um, Professor Munoz, the quotation you read from Lincoln, um, he says, I reach back to my ancient faith, which tells me that all men are created equal. I just have an interpretation question. Is that the Constitution, or is that his Christian faith? I think that um, the answer to that matters. Um, and it, it makes me think about the relationship between um, uh, liberalism and the kind of illiberal uh, pockets that support it, like family and faith. And I'm wondering, say, given the lack of Christian context in which we now read the Constitution, because we're pretty post-Christian as a country, whether that um, whether that changes, you know, um, how we read it and uh, and its effectiveness. Do you want to take the Scottish Enlightenment? Great, thank you. Uh, so, um, yeah, so the question about uh, first more the economic side of things. I mean, that's uh, first of all so kind of acknowledgement and admission that that's not uh, an area of strength. I don't know how anyone can understand economics at some level. But, um, but um, uh, in fact, you know, uh, Maria Sanford from uh, Sentinels here, so uh, I don't want to tell her that I want to write an academic book. So, so after my next great blockbuster book uh, with you, uh, uh, I do want to write, a, uh, I've long planned uh, an academic study of the idea of division of labor in Western political tradition, uh, which seems to me an essential subject uh, to be treated. Uh, and here, I think, actually, Smith is a really important figure. Uh, and I would place him exactly in the category uh, of the thinkers that I would regard as representing uh, the Enlightenment tradition, or sorry, the, uh, the liberal tradition, and sometimes classical liberal tradition. Hume's, Hume's very kind of complicated figure. It's not even clear to me that he really fits into any kind of easy category. And Smith as well, but I'll just make one quick statement about Smith. I'm fascinated by a kind of pre-modern tradition. If you see articulated in the Greeks, uh, you see articulated in the biblical tradition, you see it in uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he speaks of 
um, the, the various gifts of a community. Uh, you see it in Plato's Republic, where Plato speaks of, is it better for one person to do every job that, one, that is needed to live, or is it better for one person to do one job in order to live? Uh, you see it articulated in John Winthrop's uh, great um, uh, uh, sermon on Christian charity, which is very Pauline. All of these essentially say that our, our differences and our different vocations and our callings are means by which we understand our participation in the whole. They are the avenue, and in fact, as Winthrop puts it, God makes us different. God gives us different talents so we can understand that we're not self-sufficient. That this is an important way for us to understand our need of each other. It's a way of overcoming that very claim that I did it myself. Right? Uh, that uh, That's so much part of the liberal tradition. And it seems to me Smith is really a key figure in the development of liberalism, in a sense, in literally separating into two books. One book is about sort of economics, or the division of labor, something you do without regard to how my work relates to your work and so forth. That's how the invisible hand is going to do its work. Uh, and then a theory of moral sentiments in which the sort of moral and ethical considerations are treated as part of a moral universe. And it seems to me it's this separation that's really key in understanding um, the trajectory of the liberal tradition, in some ways the trajectory of the left liberal tradition too, which says once you separate these out, it's no longer our responsibility to do this, this work. It becomes the state's responsibility. So it's either the invisible hand or it's the state. It's a really key moment, and I think Smith is, plays a really important role. So I, it's a book I still have to write, and I really want to write, and I pray for enough years that it would be a big book. but. Uh, uh, but it's a very important, uh, uh, seems to be a very important uh, issue or question. Yeah, very good. You should you should write that book. Uh, the, uh, uh, question, let me start with a question on Lincoln. When, when Lincoln refers to his ancient faith, he's referring to the Declaration of Independence. Right? So the, the principles, uh, Patrick said 1789, but actually 1776. What's interesting, it's not so clear that Lincoln was a Christian. Right, uh, and uh, if you read the second inaugural, right, uh, as, I mean, Lincoln, you know, if you read that, you're like, Lincoln is a, uh, a Hebrew prophet, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to believe someone who could author those words doesn't have an understanding of providence and providence is working in the world. But Lincoln's own religious faith is not, not so clear. Right? So, but uh, his ancient faith, and he does this over and over, refers to the, the Declaration. And of course, Lincoln's constitutionalism was always to, to read the Declaration uh, in light of the Constitution. I'm sorry, to read the Constitution in light of the Declaration. Right? And that's how you distinguish, distinguish the, con the Constitution's compromises from its principles. The, the, he says the Constitution is the, um, I'm sorry, the Declaration is the apple of gold in the frame of silver, which is the, the Constitution, right? The Constitution is to instantiate as best as practically possible the principles of the Declaration, right? So that's the ancient faith. And this very good question uh, uh, about the family and religion uh, in, in a regime of liberalism. And this is uh, one of, I think, one of uh, Professor Deneen's stronger points, right? He shows that um, in a regime of equality, in a regime of consent, uh, those political principles uh, have a way of infecting all of our life, including our non 
uh, political associations, uh, including the family. But under the Constitution, and within our principles, right, we have religious freedom. I mean, that's one of the great, great contributions of American constitutionalism. It's to limit the state and allow religious freedom. Right? And uh, I would say that's why churches are so important, is to, to mitigate some of the bad tendencies of the regime. But if the family, or marriage, let's just use marriage, if marriage is weak today, it's not because of excessive reflection on the Constitution's principles. Right? It's because one marriage at a time has fallen apart, and because, I'll just speak from my own tradition, I'm Catholic, because the Catholic Church has not been as good and as strong as it needs to be. The blame of religion falling apart is on religion. Right? Protestant Christianity, mainline Protestant Christianity, fell apart in the 20th century. And I fear the Catholic Church is falling apart right now before our eyes. And who deserves blame for that? Well, it's the failure of those people, individuals, to live according to their faith, and those who are supposed to be leading the faith, their failure to act as they should. Liberalism makes us free. It allows us to choose. Professor Dean is right. But to choose well is on us. You know, the regime will only do so much. If we want to be a virtuous people, we have to be a virtuous people.